we've got our established unregistered support worker workforce and, and how they will embrace and bring in students as they usually do. Delighted to be here today for the fifth CSP newscast, again with your CSP team explaining what they've been up to as well as how they can help at this difficult time during the coronavirus pandemic. So I want to first go to Rob Yeldon, who's the Director of Strategy, Policy and Engagement for the CSP. Thank you for coming on the show, Rob. Um, today we're talking about redeployment. I wonder if you could give us a bit of an overview, really, on uh, what the issues are, what members have, have been saying in this particular remit. Yeah, thanks, Jack. Um, I guess the starting point is, in workforce terms, we're in kind of totally uncharted and unprecedented territory. Um, you know, the flexibility that people have had to show in the last few weeks uh, is absolutely incredible. And I think if you'd said to most people uh, a couple of months ago that the numbers of people who would be moving between roles, between locations in the NHS in particular, um, were the, what we're seeing at the moment, they just wouldn't have believed us. And we've seen some quite uh, extraordinary things like you know, consultant surgeons having to act as healthcare assistants. So uh, the world has very much turned upside down, I guess. Mm. Um, I mean, I think in terms of physiotherapy, obviously, we've had to see a lot more physios working in ICU. Uh, we've seen, obviously, people having to develop very rapidly rehab for people who've had COVID, uh, as well as keeping those people who um, have had a whole range of other conditions uh, in a situation that they can be discharged, free up beds. Uh, and we've obviously got ongoing essential rehab needs for a whole whole cohorts of patients. Um, and all of that has meant having to move people around. Uh, and some of that's flexibility within the NHS, moving people between sectors or locations. But also what we've seen is um, a recognition that there's a much wider physiotherapy workforce out there uh, than just those people directly employed by the NHS. So... Uh, trying to bring private practitioners in where they're needed or recently retired physios and students as well, uh, which I, I think my colleagues will probably talk to you about in a little while. Um, some of the challenges have been, of course, that those systems for bringing people in are, are not the same everywhere. So each of the UK countries has slightly different registration arrangements. Um, and each locality is going to be different. So one part of the, the country uh, may have a need for a particular set of skills and a particular number of people that's not the same as somewhere else. So that can lead to some frustration. So we have had some of our students, some of our private practice members um, saying that they've registered to be available and not been called on yet. Whereas in other areas, we know that large numbers have been used and that's down to the local circumstances and that's what you'd expect uh, in this kind of situation, I guess. Um, We've also heard from some of our members and some managers some concerns that perhaps too many staff have been moved from particularly community uh, into other areas. And although there are policies and advice in each of the four countries uh, around whether you should and shouldn't move uh, staff in that way, um, again, the local circumstances are going to differ. So it's really important in those those kind of situations that people talk to managers if they've got those concerns, uh, talk to their stewards, because there is a requirement on uh, employers to consult with unions about those kind of redeployments. And I think going forward, as, as that kind of bulge of people who've been treated for COVID is hopefully beginning to dip, we're going to see actually a bulge elsewhere further along in, in, the, in the pathway, aren't we? So we're going to see more people needing ongoing rehab. And we need to see the same kind of flexibility of moving people from community and outpatients into acute back the other way. 
so there's some really big challenges ahead, I think. And with that, do you, one of the uh, concerns would be that if it was going to flow one way more than it would the other, or uh, the speed would be different. You know, it's been a fast implementation inwards within to, into services, um, acute services. If it isn't then both the scale and the pace back the other way where appropriate, then that would obviously cause us some problems. Absolutely. Um, what is good to see is seeing service managers and planners starting to have those those conversations and, and think about that, but also the systems at national level. Uh, so the chief allied health professions officers in the four countries and various people in the arm's length bodies are exactly having those kind of conversations about what kind of short-term workforce are we going to need for that kind of community rehab for COVID, but also how does that fit without the longer-term needs uh, for rehab in the community? So those conversations are happening. CSP is part of those, as are many other organisations we work closely with. Um, but uh, as with, with the initial response, it's going to vary around the country. It's going to vary around local circumstances and local needs. Uh, and people are going to have to do quite a lot of work locally to work out what they need, where do they need people, and to have those conversations with colleagues who, who are managing or running other services about where they're going to get that workforce from. I wonder if you could advise members as to how they could raise concerns or get advice, particularly on redeployment uh, from the CSP at this moment. Well, in the first instance, people should talk to their own manager uh, about what is the reason for the redeployment, what are they actually being asked to do. Uh, if they're still concerned, then they should talk to their CSP uh, representatives, their shop steward, um, or their health and safety rep, if it's a health and safety concern they've got. Um, if they don't have a rep locally or don't know who that is, they can contact the inquiries team at the CSP uh, and we can then make sure they get the right kind of advice. But it's really important that we do get that feedback from the front line. Uh, so we are relying on, on our our local reps to give us updates on what is happening and to raise any concerns and that's then being used to inform what we say nationally right brilliant yeah well that's and that's uh, something from previous episodes that we've come to find that the the network of triage and, and making that that make sure that flows through so as to not overwhelm sort of central hubs especially with you guys adapting and working remotely so that's great great advice i want to bring jill in jill this uh, now a veteran of the newscast i think the third episode uh, for jill rollinson who is the assistant director for practice and development sitting particularly with an interest in education and workforce jill which we particularly want to talk about students again with you um, particularly around their stepping up and their redeployment what are the particular key messages there yeah thanks Jack so we've got um, a huge number of students across the country um, if we deal with the final year students first so those that are really very close to the end of their programs um, many of those who've been deemed by the universities to have done enough clinical practice and to have met the relevant standards of proficiency have actually been put forward to the HCPC's temporary register. Uh, and those students who, many of whom have still got academic pieces of work to do, so we do want them to focus on finishing their studies. We need them to finish their qualifying degree and get onto the full register. But if they've been put forward onto the temporary register, then they are able now to join the workforce as band five uh, physiotherapists. So, of course, um, got lots of skills to step in perhaps um, to address that huge rehab need that Rob's just talked about 
and really ready and willing and able to do that. Of course, that's an opt-in, so there's no pressure on students to have to do that. Um, but for those that feel they want to and are able to and have been uh, put on that temporary register, then that's a great opportunity for them to, to do their bit. So with what Rob was saying about the varying local needs of the workforce, there's, there's been sometimes those those have been taken up on and then other times it's not, which is then related. There's plenty of opportunity, but sometimes some frustration there. What would you say to members that are in those boats? Yeah, I'd completely agree. We're in a, we're in strange times to say the least. And I think in terms of workforce redeployment, I think we're in a, a slightly interim period where we've geared up for delivery of lots of acute services. Of course, they ha we had to plan for potentially huge numbers of, of acutely unwell patients. And in some areas that hasn't always materialised, thank goodness. And now we're sort of in a period where as we restart regular services, as physios who've been redeployed and moved back to their usual services, and we start to address what is the next phase in the COVID pandemic, I think we will see some utilisation of that, that workforce. We've also got a huge group of students who, we, either those final year students who haven't done enough clinical placements to join the temporary register, or those who are perhaps in the middle years of their programme, who've got some really key skills that they've developed. And HEE and the four capos in the the four countries are working on arrangements where we can utilize some specific funding that comes from COVID um, workforce funding to give these students an opportunity to work as support workers and we're really encouraging them to work in therapy assistant roles where they can be really utilize their therapy skills but they can continue to use those if you like we're, we're almost moving towards a model of paid placements so what that allows those students to do is join the workforce and be able to provide that extra pair of hands. You know, we're going to have this unprecedented need for rehabilitation of both COVID and non-COVID patients, particularly in the community. And as our services sort of settle back into some sense of normality, perhaps, we've got this, this huge workforce that we can tap into. But there is funding to give them support worker contracts, and that gives them the benefit of being financially uh, rewarded for, for that, for, for having to have some sort of disruption to their studies, if you like. But it also gives them the employment protection and rights when working in this higher risk environment. And I think we've got some real challenges ahead, but we're working really closely with our HEI partners and our clinical educators and students to think about how we can almost broker an arrangement where students can support the workforce and provide those extra pairs of hands and actually get on the, on the front line where they're able to and where they want to, but also that we engage them in still having a learning contract, an educator, and to be able to keep in working with the university on a part-time basis so they can actually demonstrate that they're continuing to develop their professional learning. Because what we really don't want to happen at the end of this is for a huge number of our students to be delayed in graduating because that will cause its own problems um, in the next sort of next two to three years. So we've somehow got to really be quite creative and innovative, I think. And I think it feels quite scary and a bit unknown at the moment. We've got all these students ready. We've got services feeling they don't need a lot of extra support workers. And I think we just need to take our time to think this through and utilise the funding we've got, 
utilize these these students who've got a huge breadth of skills and just think about how we best use those to ensure that patients get the absolute amounts of rehab that they need and deserve in, in the right place at the right time. Individualised contracts relevant to local needs as well as the student's particular stage or what they have and haven't done is obviously the, the optimal, and, and but it's also hugely time-consuming. Are there any generic features to it that could mean that these contracts don't always need to be tailored in, in such a timely manner? Like, What is, the, what is the, the general gist of what it would look like? So the universities are setting up this sort of system in that they've asked students whether they would like to opt in who are eligible in these middle years once those students have given their details and let let the university know whether they want to opt in or or not the he in england and we're we're seeing this um being modeled similarly in the other nations um they're going to try and connect students to their local providers. So, of course, many students have moved home, so they're not necessarily near their university where they're studying. And they, the universities will stay in touch with those students uh, wherever they take up that work. And I think there's a wider message about how we then get our clinical um, educators to stay in contact with the universities and to be able to provide some sign-off and we make that as straightforward as possible perhaps pass-fail sort of arrangements rather than the educators having to spend lots of time sort of understanding lengthy university paperwork perhaps that they're not familiar with and um, but really finding ways that we can broker that locally um, and utilize that funding as I say to do that but very much on an individual basis and we're hearing of this working really quite well in some trust um, you know perhaps there's even a model where a student who's a support worker can work in one area for six weeks eight weeks and then move to another area so they're continuing to learn and offer it but still offering their skills and that flexibility uh, to the employers as they require it. No, fantastic. And uh, thank you and, and the CSP for the support of that pre process. It's uh, certainly very complex. Now, we're talking about students stepping up as support workers, but I want to bring Claire Fordham in, who's the professional advisor in practice and development with a particular remit under support workforce. Um, Claire, the uh, support workers across the physiotherapy profession, namely CSP associate members, have been working again in, in various different redeployed roles or stepping up in various ways. Could you give a bit of a, shine a bit of light on that for us? Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Jack. I mean, I suppose the first thing to say is that you know the the, the non-registered workforce, the support workforce, they're a really high highly valued part of the um, physiotherapy workforce. And they too have this abundance of transferable knowledge, skills, experience and expertise. And just like the registered workforce, we've seen them redeployed into all sorts of other roles across professional boundaries, lots of them into nursing support roles in critical care. Um, and what we're hearing from our associate members that have been redeployed in that way is just what they're able to bring in terms of working with that kind of core rehabilitation approach and reabling approach and really bringing that into the um, other multi-professional teams they're working in. And then what we've also heard from our associate members is where where they have remained in perhaps their um, their usual role, and the rest of their team have been redeployed. They're really stepping up and leading. You know, we've always said that support workers lead as leadership at every level um, in the workforce. 
But what we're seeing is, um, and we, we've been calling them the calm in the storm. So they're, they're the individuals that are um, inducting new members into their areas, looking after everybody, um, showing everybody where everything is and what to do, how all the systems and processes work, and then really so generously sharing their knowledge and their expertise to support other members moving into their team, particularly the new graduates. So the, um, the final year students that are moving into band five roles on the temporary register, we're finding that, you know, the support workforce are just absolutely invaluable in supporting um, and uh, training and mentoring some of those individuals. And I think that's a, that speaks to a really important um, point about the support workforce um, that we don't always realise. And again, this is about them stepping up um, in redeployed roles or where they are already. It is They are absolutely capable and it's absolutely OK within the scope of their roles, within the tasks and responsibilities they undertake, that they can mentor, they can train, they can educate and they can support um, and we see them doing those things all the time. We just don't always recognize it. We don't always feel comfortable that that's in the scope of their role, but it really is. Um, and they're going to need to do that more and more um, as we start to see this huge shift in rehab and particularly as additional people come in and, and, and join the established workforce. Huge amount of unofficial mentorship that goes on, isn't there? Um, Absolutely. Across across um, all the all levels of practice uh, through the through the support workers and associates so the fact that that is something that needs to be appropriately formalized in this instance where they, they can really be an asset that gets otherwise untapped so that's fantastic now one of the things that both Rob and Jill have said there with regards to qualified redeployment as well as then student redeployment is where the parameters are with regards to what is and isn't appropriate is really important for us to try and work out now in this instance with support workers what do you feel is and isn't appropriate um, at the moment for redeployment so i mean it's, it's important that they still work within the context of being a non-registered member of the workforce um, and they're they're not asked to work outside the the scope of non-registered roles um, and it's important just like the registered workforce that any new area they're redeployed into they are supported with appropriate training um, induction and education to undertake the, the new uh, non-registered tasks and responsibilities that they might be able to take on. But, you know, actually, our support workforce are really, really aware of the limits on their scope of practice. It's something that, that people often worry about, but, but you'll find the support workforce are the first ones to stick up their hands and say, do you know what, this is This is not out, this is not in the scope of my practice as a support worker. They're, they're really aware of it. Yeah, there's almost some crisper lines that have been drawn across the, across time compared to some of the other blurrier lines in, in, in other places. So, no, I totally agree with that. And, uh, and fair play and thank you to all of our support workforce for, for what they're doing in stepping up and also just being seen now for what they are, which is a hugely invaluable source of, mm. of various different things, especially in times of crisis. And we all know that in departments, yet in this instance, on a macro level, they are doing exactly what we've seen of them over the years. So that's fantastic. Um, I wonder if um, I'd bring in uh, Rob and Jill again, just to see as to whether or not there's anything else with regards to redeployment that we feel we haven't touched on yet. I think just following on from what Claire said about the support worker workforce and this unregistered workforce being able to take on that role of induction and mentorship. I think if we think about 
moving a whole swathe of middle year students and putting them on band three support worker contracts, I think there's a huge opportunity and I think we shouldn't underestimate the role of the permanent support work staff in supporting that integration of students in sort of induction and helping them and and providing some supervision and mentorship that is quite acceptable to do that there will be a registered clinical supervisor absolutely but on the day-to-day work it will be there's some real opportunities and it's really interesting to see how that plays out that we've got our established uh, unregistered support worker workforce and and how they will embrace and bring in students as they usually do but just in a slightly different mechanism that we're doing that through them also being on support worker uh, contracts and I think that will bring a great synergy and opportunities for them to work together in in perhaps a way like they haven't worked together before um, and with lots of sharing of skills and knowledge across those two segments of of, of the workforce. Now, that's a really good point. It needs to be a synergy. It needs to make sure that if you know, communication needs to flow well and be understood and the parameters of those roles be understood. Otherwise, there is a risk of it clashing, which is totally needless and, and, and silly. So, so, yeah, those things need to make sure they go hand in hand. So, no, it's, it's a great point. I think it's important to recognise that there's anxieties at the moment across the system, both for students as individuals who are really feeling uncertain about how their physiotherapy programme is going to play out, how if they can take up a support worker position, what if there isn't one, what if um, it's not close to home and and some of the logistics around that, what if I'm needed and somebody else um, isn't needed and and about parity, I suppose, with each programme. And there's also anxieties amongst our clinical educators and our, our university educators about whether experience in support worker roles really replicates the same as placement learning, if you like. And I think it's important to say at the CSP, we've been working really closely with the AHP leads across the four countries to really put forward some of those anxieties and that we've got, as I say, some real opportunities here to do things differently, perhaps around placement models, um, and increasing the capacity of that workforce but we do recognize it's not without its challenges and it is going to take some some work so we are dedicating the next podcast next week to some of the more specifics around education and students so hopefully that will continue that conversation a little bit further and can i just come in there jack on um, the point that um Jill's raised there about the the students coming into the support workforce. So we know it's got to be done uh, carefully and thoughtfully, both for the um, existing workforce and for the students to come in. But what an opportunity. What an opportunity with additional roles to enhance our support workforce. So one of the things we say at the CSP as part of our policy position on support workers is that we need more support workers Um, We're not always very good at capturing the impact of the support workforce. Um, And this is a real opportunity with an enhanced support workforce to really show what the non-registered workforce bring to to physiotherapy and to rehabilitation more broadly. And a real opportunity to capture capture them. What does that look like? What does that mean then for patient outcomes um, and in terms of freeing up capacity in the registered workforce to do the things that only they can? So I really hope that members listening to this don't think of students coming to the support workforce uh, as a hindrance or something they've then got to, uh, that takes away 
away their time. I, I hope people will see that it's a real opportunity to uh, see what we can do with increased numbers in our support workforce. There's a great chance as well, I think, for for student members that are going to be aspiring to be full and qualified members of staff to then truly understand and empathise with their support workforce that then it should only enhance the already sort of synergistic relationship that should exist in those departments, namely in acute services particularly. I mean, it's just a, a known, a known uh, asset to any service when those things are working together. So this should only sort of merge those things well, which is great for, for sort of the, the student's development. Um, Claire, I did want to talk to you a little bit about what we're, when we're talking about redeployment, a concern that people have is to uh, some of the things we've talked about really about what, what is and isn't in scope. Um, and there's been a lot of talk about that recently with regards to personal and professional scope and making sure we keep ourselves safe and within the parameters of, of what would be um, what we'd advise our members at this time. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a, it's a question that's come through to us quite frequently um, in the last few weeks through the professional advice service. So what the HCPC are really clear about in this time of pandemic around scope is that um, it's absolutely acceptable and understandable that people are going to work across usual professional um, sector and setting boundaries. Um, and in terms of scope of practice, that is absolutely fine. Um, what's really important is that nobody works outside of their personal scope. So there's a difference between professional scope and personal scope. It's really important people don't work outside their personal scope or don't feel that they're being asked to work outside their personal scope. And personal scope uh, essentially means uh, the, the things that you're being asked to do uh, and being sure that you're competent to do those things. So whatever you're being asked to do um, in new ways of working during this period of response to the pandemic and redeployment, it's just that you are trained you're educated you're competent to do that so if people are moving into a new practice area or somewhere they haven't um, been before and they're not familiar with what they're being asked to do um, whether that's as a support worker or um, a registered practitioner you should you should still receive the appropriate training so that you are competent and safe to undertake the things that you're being asked to do yeah, no, it's uh, really important and valuable for people to understand that distinction and also to make sure that they keep themselves safe in this time. I think there's sometimes, and, and it was mentioned in previous newscasts, uh, Jim Fahey particularly brings a bell for him explaining about the fact that this is not the time to put yourself at any undue risk. In fact, you're so, you're so valuable right now that that is the, the worst thing to do. And so that's another example where we need to make sure we keep that in mind and understand the scope of practice and its importance. The very first podcast we did uh, with Karen Middleton mentioning, and Ruth Tenhove, I think, also mentioned the fact that sometimes it feels uncomfortable to talk about opportunities at a time in which, of course, we're all scrambling uh, to, to offer offer solutions to uh, a crisis. However, um, Rob, I wanted to bring you in on the potential opportunity for the profession to demonstrate itself and its versatility. So um, what are your thoughts on, on opportunities and even the appropriateness of us thinking about opportunities at this time? Yeah, I think it, it, it does feel slightly odd, but you know, the reality is that you know, change always brings with it um, options and choices, and some of those will be opportunities. Um, and there will be positives despite all the, the terrible things that are happening. Um, and if you think about what's happening on the ground where you've got 
physios and physio support workers demonstrating their skills, demonstrating their flexible approach, demonstrating the added value that they can bring in terms of rehab. Um, that's being seen. That's being seen by um, senior managers. It's being seen by directors of nursing. It's being seen by consultants. All those people who are going to be making decisions long after COVID about the workforce. Uh, so in that sense, this is you know, a, a really important time uh, where the rest of the system can really see what, what added value physiotherapy is bringing. Uh, and I hope that the other end of this, they'll, they'll remember that and that uh, future workforce planning will think about what, how can we use our physios and our physio support workers to make a bigger difference in healthcare. I hope it'll mean that in national workforce planning, we also actually look at that whole workforce, as the CSP has already, always argued, uh, and we don't get caught in that mistake of thinking that the future need is only the future need for people directly employed by the NHS. Uh, if nothing else, this has shown that you have to look at the whole of the profession, the whole of the needs, um, and when we're planning for future numbers for students or when we're planning for uh, investment in development of, of the profession we need to look at the whole profession whether that's nhs private practice charities the military wherever physios are they're all working on covid at the moment in the future we'll need them all to be working on the rehab around covid um, and therefore we need that whole workforce planning to take account of the whole profession robbie eldon jill rowlinson claire fordham thank you very much for your time